Anthony Campola has a friend who has a little four-year-old daughter. And she's just so full of life, effervescent and, and uh, gregarious and excited about life. He said if we, if we were having a Shirley Temple tryout, modern-day Shirley Temple tryout, she'd win hands down. She's just full of life. And he said one day they were having this electrical storm where they lived, and lightning was flashing and the thunder was rolling. And they got concerned about the little girl because she was upstairs playing in her room. It was pretty quiet, so they went up to check on her, see if she was all right. And they stepped inside of her door. They saw her over by the window, you know, kind of in a pose. And they said, uh, Nancy, what are you doing? And she turned away from the lightning flash to her parents and said, I think God's trying to take my picture. <laughs> now, and why don't we feel that good about ourselves? I mean, why don't we feel that, that kind of self-image? Uh, why is there such self-loathing and self-hatred? Listen to what Dreyker says in his book, Concepts of Personality. He says, It is obvious that in our society few people believe they are good enough as they are and can therefore be sure of their esteemed place. Everyone tries to be more, to be better, to reach higher, and as a consequence, we're all neurotic in a neurotic society, which pays a premium to the overambitious search for prestige and striving for superiority. Underneath, we're all frightened people, not sure of ourselves, of our worth, or of our place. It is, it is, in this, it is this doubt of oneself expressed in a feeling of inadequacy and inferiority which is at the root of all maladjustment and psychopathology. What a statement. I suppose that the people who feel loved are rare people. The Apostle John was such a man. I suppose that, that we could call him the disciple who felt loved. Now, Jesus didn't have favorites, but he did have intimates. And it's obvious that John was an intimate, and he knew it. You, you've heard the term, haven't you? The disciple whom Jesus loved. It appears only in the fourth gospel, the gospel he wrote. He wrote that about himself. It's as if John were saying, boy, Jesus loves me. I mean, Jesus really does love me. And that term, the disciple whom Jesus loved, appears four times in that fourth gospel alone. In the upper room, the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to Jesus at the supper, chapter 13. At Calvary, Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved standing near, chapter 19. On resurrection morn, when Mary Magdalene found the tomb empty, the stone rolled away, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, chapter 20. And later at Galilee, after that fruitless night of fishing, there was a stranger on the shore, and that disciple whom Jesus loved said, It is the Lord, chapter 21. I mean, he just... He was the disciple who felt loved. 
Now there's a lot to be said about somebody who feels loved, especially who feels loved by God. And, and notice that I use the word feel love because we can know that we are loved with our minds and not feel it down here. As a matter of fact, we've heard all the time that God loves us. One of the first songs we ever learned to sing was, Jesus loves me, this I know. And we know that up here with our minds, theoretically. But like John Claypool said, we need to hear that down in our gut. It's so important because how one views himself is crucial to all subsequent experiences. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, let me paraphrase that just a little bit. Let me say it like this. You will love your neighbor as yourself. For I found that the people who love themselves love other people around them. And the people who have learned to accept themselves are able to accept the people in their spheres of life. For the pattern you develop in relating to yourself lays down the tracks of how you're going to relate to everybody else. I never will forget the first time I was introduced to transactional analysis. I'm okay, you're okay? And that was popular in the early 70s. And this guy had this chart and had these big circles. And one of them said, I'm okay. And under it was, you're okay. And we're okay. And they're okay. And it's okay. And across from those circles were some more circles that said, I'm not okay. You're not okay. We're not okay. <laughs> they're not okay. It's not okay. And everything depends on how you move out of the circle as you relate to yourself. For you see, if... If the beginning point is negative, then that, that, that greatly affects all other perceptions. Now here's a principle I want you to get. That what we arrive at as a conclusion is greatly colored by what we begin with as an assumption. Now where do these assumptions come from that we're not okay? I mean, if everybody, and, and as Dreiker says, is a neurotic he doesn't feel good about himself. Where, do this, where does this assumption come from? And I'm not okay, so you're not okay, and they're not okay, and it's not okay. Well, now I know there, there's a lot more involved than just what happens to us when we're kids with regard to our parents. I'm not so dumb that i you know, naive to know that there's much more involved than that. But it seems to me that a lot, of where, a lot of this beginning assumption that you and I have in life, whether it's a positive assumption or a negative assumption, that beginning assumption, to the, for the most part, begins with how we relate to the first people we know. That's, that's our parents. Well, you see, kids are, are great observers, but they're poor interpreters. Kids are able to take everything in, but they come to some... Poor conclusions sometimes. Do you remember seeing the movie Kramer versus Kramer? What a sad movie. You remember that, that scene at the breakfast table where that little boy and his father got into that argument and he just tested his father until they just got into a real battle? And finally the little boy in his frustration and in his anger said, Are you going to leave me too like Mama did? Well, what he concluded, what he assumed was that that his mother left him because of his bad behavior. It didn't have anything to do with it. But where we begin with an assumption greatly colors what we are, where we arrive as a conclusion 
And if that is true then, something great must have been going on in the life of John with his mom and dad. How many of them must have been somebody special? And so I want to spend a little time this morning. I want you to join me. I just want to see if we can find out what was so special about John's mama and his dad. So if you have a New Testament, we'll turn to Matthew chapter 20. And we'll take a look at his mother. It begins at verse 20 of chapter 20. It says this. hope you've already looked it up because you saw the reference in your program, they call it. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came to him, Jesus, with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Two or three things about this mother of John. She was a worshiping woman. Pretty awesome to me. Pretty, pretty staggering to me that, that here would come a woman with her sons and bow down to this itinerant preacher. Now the identification of Jesus had not really been established in the world. Really, all that people knew about Him at this time was that He was just kind of a strange, holy man, an itinerant preacher, didn't even have a place to lay His head. It's pretty awesome that... that this woman would come and bow down at the feet of the Lord for her sons. Let me ask you a question, Mother. How many times have, have your children seen you bowing at the feet of the Lord in your behalf? I mean, some of us this morning can remember a mother who prayed. How many mothers, how many mothers can say, Well, my children have seen me bow before the Lord in treating for them. How many times have they seen you do that lately? James Wanamaker, the great statesman, was asked one time, What is the greatest, most glorious moment in your life? He had a lot to choose from, for he was a great statesman and writer. This is what he said, The greatest moment in my life was when my mother took my tiny baby hands folded them in prayer, and pointed me to God. And so in this crucial moment in the life of James and John, this mother brought her sons to the feet of the Lord and pointed them toward God. Now, I'm going to have to admit, I, 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 I'll admit that, that the mother of John has taken a lot of bad publicity about what she asked for. I mean, she got a lot of bad print. She said to Jesus, I want you to give one of them a place on the right hand and one of them a place on the left. I've always wanted which would be which. And I've heard, I've heard a Mother's Day sermons preached on this text about what mothers are not supposed to do. You know, ask the Lord for these special things about their kids. You know, make my son right-handed uh, on the right hand and the other one on the left hand And when you come to your kingdom. We, we've, given, we've given her... But before you throw some stones at this mother... Let, let me ask you this question, Mother. How many times have you entreated the Lord in behalf of what's best for your children? I mean, do you make that a regular occasion? I mean, every morning when you get up, do you cover them in prayer with the blood of the Lord? I mean, do you go before the Lord? How often do you do that and entreat for your children what you feel to be best for them? Now, Jesus didn't scold her for the prayer. He just kind of redirected the request. And, and all you got to do is just tell the Lord what you think you 
You know what's best for them. He'll redirect the prayer. The point is, are you doing that on a regular basis? When Jesus came to die and it was time to entrust the care of His mother to some other man, He's going to choose somebody He knew, He knows that has the same kind of relationship that He had with His own. Who did He choose? He looked down from that cross and He saw this man, John, who had a special relationship with His mother. And He said, John, there's your mother. And John became the substitute for the substitute. Can I ask you a question this morning? If our Lord were dying today on a cross in Duran, Oklahoma, and He had to entrust His mother to some man present, would He entrust her to you? Knowing what He knows about you and your relationship to your mother. Hear me, kids. Now what about His dad? I mean, this is Mother's Day. Really, this is Parents' Day as well. We need to find out something that went on here with his father. So I want you to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 1. The book of Mark, chapter 1. Last Friday night, I, uh, I went on a little camp out with RAs, and Coach Dalzell gave us a devotional, wonderful devotional from this text. I thought he, I thought he was stealing my sermon. I, I knew what I was going to speak on. I thought, oh, Lord. He's going to get all my thunder. He did a marvelous job. I'm just going to kind of pick up where he left off. Look at this. Chapter 1, verse 19. And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, that's Jesus, saw them, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, underline that. And they went away. I love that statement I said in the early service. That just grips me every time I read that. And they went away and they followed him. Now what about this father, Zebedee? Two or three things about him that I think just contributed to the health image of, of John, the reason why he felt loved. One is because he taught these boys how to work. Now, it's significant that, that, that Zebedee wasn't a poor man. I mean, he had, he had a business, and that says a lot. And he had hired servants, and that says a whole lot more. Now, wouldn't it be a temptation, don't you think, if you had hired servants and you're going to have to pay them anyway to let the boys get, cut them a little slack, you know, let them do the office work? Well, doesn't that seem logical? I mean, you're going to have to pay these hired servants anyway. I mean... Cut the boys a little slack and let them work in the office or let them sleep in. Not Zebedee. He got those boys out there, you know, and he got them in the heat and the sweat. He got them in the hard work. He got them in the dealing, you know, and the wheeling and the dealing of the day by day. I mean, he, he not only taught them how to work, he taught them to work. Now, I made, a, I made an amazing discovery one time. The discovery is that, that, that I discovered that work was present before the curse. I thought that when I was cutting chop, uh, chopping cotton, cutting weeds out in West Texas when I was a kid, I thought that Adam was responsible for that. I mean, I, I called him some names I couldn't repeat, you know, from this pulpit, out there sweating, 
working in, in the cotton patch of West Texas because I had the idea that work was the result of the fall. Now, I made this discovery that before the curse, before the fall, God brought Adam into the garden and said, I want you to care for this garden. I want you to till it, work it, care for it. Well, you see, the ideal state of sinless man was not one of indolence or without responsibility. The perfect state of the garden was a place of duty and work. You don't do anybody a favor when you make it possible for them not to have to work. I think sometimes we, you know, we develop this welfare state and we congratulate ourselves on the fact that, that we'll make it possible so some people won't have to work. I mean, in some cases, it's better when they don't, you know, they don't work because they can make more money on welfare. We, we congratulate ourselves on that. We're not doing anybody a favor with that. A part of what it means to be fulfilled in life is to have a, is to have a responsibility and a work. And not only did he take them out there in the heat and the sweat, but the Scripture says that they, they were mending their nets. And, and let me tell you what, what that's about. You see, they fished with nets. They didn't fish with hooks and rods and reels. They, and I'm told they had little, little fine strands of wire. And, and, and they'd, those little nets would get snagged and little holes in them. And so these guys would have to take about a half a day and mend those nets and repair the holes and the snags. And it was a boring, tedious task. Now, surely you're going to cut the guys some slack from that. I mean, the hired servants could do that menial, boring, tiring task, but he didn't. Now, now why do you suppose he got those boys out there and, and they just kind of stopped? Where is, there's a little bit of excitement in fishing. They say, I don't get anything out of it, but I mean, I, there's got to be a little sense of accomplishment in fishing. But I mean, mending the nets, surely there's somebody else that could do it. Why do you suppose he got those boys out there to do that? I think so he could spend some time with them. Now, I'm going to use my imagination. You can use yours. I think he just sat on the side of the, of the lake out on some big rock. And, and as they mended those nets in that tedious, boring responsibility, they just got their talking. And dad and sons, dad and sons, are you listening? Dad and sons were just spending time together. Now they were just talking. In Robert Rain's book, Creative Brooding, he has this letter. Dear folks, thank you for everything, but I'm going to Chicago and try to start some kind of new life. You ask me why I did those things and why I gave you so much trouble, and the answer is easy for me to give you, but I'm wondering if you'll understand. Remember when I was about six or seven and I used to want you just to listen to me? I remember all the nice things you gave me for Christmas and my birthday, and I was really happy with the things about a week. At the time, I got the things. But the rest of the time, during the year, I really didn't want presents. I just wanted all the time for you to listen to me like I was somebody who felt things too. Because I remember even when I, said, when I was young, I felt things, but you said you were too busy. Mom... You're a wonderful cook. You had everything so clean and you were tired so much from doing all those things that made you busy. But you know something, Mom? 
I would have loved crackers and peanut butter just as well if you had only sat down with me a while during the day and said to me, tell me all about it, son, so I can help you understand. If anybody asks you where I am, tell them I've gone looking for somebody with time because I've got a lot of things that I want to talk about. Is that a big enough guilt trip that I put you on a big enough... I apologize for that, but not when I say this. Are you spending any time with your kids? There is one thing that I hear most often from kids is this. I know it's not all our fault as parents, but the one thing I hear verbalized most often is this. I can't talk to my parents. There's a third thing about Zebedee is that he was close enough to God and he was close enough to his sons to know when God called them. He was close enough to God and he was close enough to his children to know God's will for them. Now, I don't know how you're ever going to be able to, 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 to have that kind of an experience or that kind of knowledge if you don't spend some time with God yourself. Now, it seems to me that if there is a father and if there is a mother who, who, who is spending some time on their knees before God for their, for their children, that that father and that mother is going to know what God wants for them. So that when the Lord came walking by, it was no surprise to Zebedee. And that leads me to the, to the last thing I want to say about him. He was able to release his sons. Now I want you to get this picture. If you haven't listened to it before, you will listen to this. In that culture, it, vocation was kind of handed down, you see. So this man lived for the day when he could hand his business down to his sons. That's all he'd worked for. That was his dream. I guess the dream of many fathers, can't do this when you're a preacher, although my son of late has kind of you know, giving me the, he's kind of talking about he'd like to somehow be closer here, his dad. I guess the dream of every um, father is that he's able to hand to his son his business. And so here's this father. He, he's worked and, and he's built up a business and he's living for the day when he can say to his boys, okay, boys, it's yours. I'm heading for the mountains. I'm heading for the trout streams. I'm getting out of here. I'm, 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 I'm history. Here's your business. And he's living for that, you see. And can you imagine what would happen to you if that were, you know, you were, you'd built up a business and you'd slave for a lifetime so you could hand it, and, and all of a sudden some preacher comes by. Itinerant. God didn't even have a place to lay his head. Strangest man that's ever been in, on the history of the, in the history of the earth. I mean, and all of a sudden he walks by and he says to your sons, Come on boys, follow me. And they get up and follow him. Well, what would you have done? I mean, they look over at Zebedee and, and, and they just kind of give him a look and out the boat they go. You know what I'd have done? I'd have said, Now, you've done a lot of stupid things in your lifetime, but brother, that's the worst. So come back here. I mean, you made some wild and foolish choices in your lifetime. This takes the cake. I mean, look at my hands. They're calloused from working. 
Look at this body. I've broken it down. I've spent a lifetime building up this business so you can have it. You're going to go off after this man? What he said. Now I know that we can't argue from silence, but I want to argue from silence. And from the silence that went on in that boat, Zebedee was saying, in essence, this. Boys, all my life I've tried to teach you what was right. I'm going to trust you and your decision that this is right. Go with my blessing. No wonder, no wonder John felt so good about himself. No wonder every time you read the epistles that he wrote, he says, my little children love one another. No wonder that the theme of his writings years later was love with a father and a mother like that. Listen, I'm through. There is an old Hindu fable that says that a little tiger cub was orphaned and raised by a flock of goats. And all, he needed to do, all he knew to do was nibble grass and bleat like goats, because that's all he'd seen modeled. That's all he'd seen. And so he, he'd bleat and he'd nibble at grass, although something down deep inside of him told him that that was not him. One day a king tiger came through the jungle and saw the little tiger cub. And in king tiger language... In tiger language, he said, What is this? What's going on here? Hold it. That's tiger talk. And he said, what are, what are you doing like that? And, and, and the tiger cub, he'd never talked tiger talk. So all he could do was bleat like a goat and nibble at some more grass. But the fable says that somehow the tiger, king tiger, nudged the little tiger cub over to a mountain pond and for the first time he looked in and saw himself. And he realized he was different from the goats. And about that time the tiger, king tiger, went into the forest and brought out a piece of raw meat and for the first time the tiger cub got a taste of raw meat. He bit into that piece of meat and the fable says that his tail lashed the grass and his roar scattered the birds in the forest. And the, and the point of the fable is this. Are you listening? The point of the fable is this. Every child needs a parent to show him who he is. The wonder of John was that he had a mother and a daddy who showed him who he was. Let's pray together. Father, all that we have to say today is really just talk unless your Holy Spirit pierces the human heart with a divine piercing. I pray that will happen. Father, there would be sufficient evidence, sufficient information for repentance and change and commitment. Most of all, I pray that there would be the work of the Holy Spirit 
to bring about decision, human decision, a human response to a divine command. For I ask in Jesus' name and for His sake. Now would you please look here. There will be three invitations. An invitation this morning for you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ for His salvation, for salvation, to come and receive His gift, eternal life. Would you pray this simple prayer? Jesus, I've sinned against you and I'm sorry. I want you to come into my life and be my Savior. And I surrender the control room of my life to you. Would you pray that prayer? If you've never prayed that prayer, would you make that decision this morning to be saved? I want to invite you to come and place your life in the fellowship of this church. Maybe you've asked God about it. He's been leading you, prompting you to place your life here. That's what we want. Only those that God leads here. Most of all, I speak, I want to urge this morning, if there are those of us who is in the early service who just came to say, who came forward publicly to say, I want to come this morning to commit myself to be a better father and a better mother, a better listener, a better model, a better Christian. I want to come, commit my home to be a Christian home. I want to do the part God hasn't for me in that. that. Those are the invitations. And while we stand to sing, we invite you to come. Would you come? On the first word, you come.